0: The reading is taken from Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 11, and it reads as follows. So when they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Lingi, for that uh, for that reading. Morning, everybody. Uh, just some housekeeping before we pray. Um, Tediso asked me to please, on his behalf, uh, thank the finance committee. And the finance team, I mean, so when I saw that picture, I, I, I was thinking about you guys, and I'm not sure it inspires a whole lot of confidence <laughs> in the team. But uh, we have a wonderful team, and um, we have, a, we have a, a great support team who really get behind Siriso and do a lot of the legwork to make those uh, financials happen. So that's Christina, that's Jabu, that's Tammy's often involved. Uh, so, so on behalf on his behalf, thank you, and I'm sure on our behalf, we want to thank Siriso for uh, the work that he does, and also for making it colorful and interesting for us to sit through a finance report. So I think you can put your hands together for them. And of course, we are profoundly thankful to uh, break even after the years, the couple of years that we've had. That is a work of the Lord, and and as David prayed, we are extremely grateful to him for his goodness to us, expressed through your generous giving. Why don't you join me in a word of prayer, and we'll come to our passage. Father, as always, um, we can do nothing in and of ourselves. We desperately need your, your help. We want to encounter your king. Uh, we want to approach him in the attitude that is fitting uh, and appropriate to him. We want to approach with fear and trembling. We want to approach with boldness uh, because of... Um, because of your grace so father please will you meet with us now help us to see you through him in the power of your spirit and help us to leave here changed people for christ's sake for your glory we pray amen last week we asked what is the church i hope um i hope you came away crystal clear uh, with a deep conviction that the church is an act of god Uh, It's an act of God from start to finish that moves us to humility before him, to deep love for the saints, and to zeal for the lost. This week we're going to ask an equally basic and equally annoying question for this time of the morning. What is the church for? What is the church for? What is the core business of the church? And once again, there's a whole range of answers to that question, uh, isn't there? both within the church culture and out in the wider culture. For many, the church is a service provider. We are here to provide spiritual insurance. We are here to hatch, match, and dispatch baptisms, weddings, and funerals. Those are our top-performing products. They provide spiritual cover in an uncertain world. So you want God's blessings on your children, on your marriage. You want smooth passage into the next life, once you have those products in place you can get on with real life that's what the church is for put it another way the church is a kind of an institutional sangoma life has many problems most of those problems have spiritual causes we go to the church to deal with the spiritual causes so that we can solve the problems and get on with real life what is the job of the church that's our question Is it moral formation? Is it to take bad people and make them good? Is it social outreach? Is it to take suffering people and improve their lot in life? Here are two extreme ways of thinking about the purpose of the church. So on the one hand, we might say that the job of the church is to band together in holiness while we wait for Jesus to return. We might call that model pietism. It's at one end of the spectrum. Or, on the other hand, the job of the church is to be a force for change in the here and now. And we might call that model activism on the other end of the spectrum. So, activism and pietism, two extremes that represent the whole range of confusion about what the church is actually supposed to be doing. The interesting thing is that we see both of those extremes in our passage. So, I call them extremes, but they're fairly common in our thinking. The disciples themselves start out in the activist mode. So have a look at verse 6, and it'll be great if you can have your Bible open, whether it's an app, whether it's hard copy, uh, because I'm going to need to be taking you through the Scriptures. So we start out, the disciples, they start out in in an activist mode of thinking, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They are defining the kingdom in purely political, nationalistic terms it's it's quite familiar to us that sort of thinking jesus rebukes them by telling them effectively it's none of your business let me tell you what your business is and we'll come to that in just a moment so jesus just almost flippantly discards the activist model his disciples react in fact they overreact by the end of the scene they have fallen into the pietistic model So after Jesus ascends, you can see it in verse 10, after he ascends, they are almost paralyzed, left paralyzed, standing, staring at the sky. And this time, the the rebuke comes from the angels. There are better things to do. This standing and staring at the sky is not the core business of the church. So, if the core business of the church is not the activism of a socio-political movement... And if it's not the pietism of standing and staring at the sky, what is the core business of the church? Again, I hope it's clear from last week that we find answers not by looking at the church, but by looking at the God who made the church. Because the church is an act of God. In just these five verses, we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in action, we see the essence of what each of the three persons of the one God does to build the church. And what we're going to see is that the Father plans and exalts, the Son rules and reigns, and the Spirit empowers. The Father plans and exalts, the Son rules and reigns, and the Spirit empowers. The Father plans and exalts in verse 7 when his disciples ask about the unfolding of the kingdom. Jesus responds that it is the Father who sets these things by his own authority. All of history is under the command of God the Father. It dances to the tune that he gave it before the beginning of time. We don't have the details. The details belong to him. The future belongs to the Lord. It is not for you to know. Jesus says to his disciples. So don't invest your time and your energy in pressing the details. The details belong to the Father. Don't listen to those who want to say to you that Vladimir Putin is clearly the Antichrist and vaccination is the mark of the beast, so the end must be near. Every single generation, all the way back to Christ, to his first disciples have played this game. The game of throwing the bones of our circumstances and then claiming to be able to read off of those bones times and seasons that only the Father sets by his own authority. Don't play that game. We're going to spend um, quite a bit of time on this next week, but let me say it now. We have not been given a map. We have been given a compass. He has told us where we are going in broad sweeping terms, not in minute detail. He says to us, head north. He doesn't say you want to turn left at the left at, at the third traffic light after the builder's warehouse where the cops like to hide in the bushes just before the bridge. He doesn't give us that sort of detail. All he says is, We're going north, head north. Where's north? North is the complete uncontested rule and reign of king jesus over the universe and in your life that's north that's why in verse 9 jesus is taken up he doesn't go up he's taken up by the father he's taken up in the glory cloud, cloud and that glory cloud we know throughout scripture signals the visible presence of the invisible god The royal chariot was sent for him. That's how John Chrysostom put it. Isn't it beautiful? Chrysostom, by the way, means golden mouth. It's such a great stage name for a preacher. Golden mouth. Golden mouth tells us the royal chariot was sent for him. The father plans, and then he exalts the son. Sends the royal chariot to collect him. Why? That brings us to the Son. The Son reigns and rules. Jesus is taken up in verse 9. In verse 11, the angels promise he will return. So he goes, but he's coming back. What happens in between? Well, Peter's going to tell us in his sermon on Pentecost, Acts 2. We'll get to that in our series. In fact, David's going to take us through it. And in that sermon, he's going to explain that Jesus was exalted, so he gives us some geography. He's going to explain that Jesus was exalted, where? To the right hand of the Father. In Jewish thinking, the right hand of the Father is the place reserved for the purpose of rule and reign. That means Jesus hasn't gone on a holiday. He isn't on sabbatical, waiting to take up his new post as judge of the universe. He is actively ruling and reigning. As I speak to you this morning, he is actively ruling and reigning from the right hand of the Father over his church and over his world. He says it himself plainly in Matthew's account of the Great Commission. You remember there he told his disciples that all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he promised to be with them to the very end of the age. That's what the ascension is supposed to remind us of. His ongoing active rule and reign in the here and now. Nothing escapes his gaze. Nothing. Nothing can challenge his authority. Nothing can step or stand outside of his sovereign will. So when you watch leaders on the local stage, on the global stage, backbiting positioning, maneuvering, spinning, scratching, scraping for control, and you are tempted to despair of the human race like I am. Just remember who's really on the throne. And remember his promise to us, that until he returns in the flesh, he will always be with us, always be with us, to the very end of the age. But how will he be with us? He is physically at the right hand of the Father in his resurrected body. How will he be with us here in Midran 2022 and to the very end of the age? That brings us to the Spirit. The Father plans and exalts. The Son reigns and rules. The Spirit empowers. Look at verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Spirit is present to empower. The Spirit gives power to the church. Power for what? And now I hope you can see that we're circling back around to our original question. And our original question was, what is the church for? If we know what God the Spirit gives power to the church for, then we know what the church is for. Are you with me? What is the power of the Spirit for? Is it for miracles and healings? Is it to overcome blockages in life on the way to success? Is it to solve practical problems that might have spiritual causes? Is it for protection? Is the power of the Spirit there to fuel my ambitions and advance my career? The Spirit empowers the church. For what? For what purpose? Look at verse 8 again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. The power of the Spirit is for witness. And so the purpose of the church is witness the church is an act of God the father plans and then exalts the son the son ascends to rule and to reign the father and the son send the spirit to form the church and then empower her the role of the church, that's us is to witness to what God has done and even the power for that witness comes from God all we do is witness and the power to do it isn't even our own you see that from start to finish, the church is completely and utterly an act of God. But that doesn't mean we're passive. No, we are empowered. We are energized. We are activated by the power of the Spirit to be used of the Spirit. We have a job to do, we have to witness. Now, what does that mean? We have to witness. What what does that actually mean? Four things, I think, from our passage that is going to help us to understand. Four things to help us understand witness. Witness, firstly, has a center. And from that center, witness is about looking outward, looking forward, and looking upward. So witness has a center. From that center, we look outward, we look forward, we look upward. Witness as a centre. We're in a, a passage from Acts this morning, but Luke records exactly the same events, only in different words. At the end of his gospel, now remember, we said last week Acts. There's two parts to Acts. To Luke, Acts, right? It's one book with two volumes. Luke ends the first volume in precisely the same way that he starts the second. He's recording the same events. You're going to see the wording is different, but essentially he's saying the same thing. It's a record of the same thing. It's one of the ways he stitches the two volumes together. He picks up where he left off. So just keep your finger in Acts and come with me to Luke 24. Luke 24. Verse 46. It reads as follows. Luke 24 verse 46. Jesus told his disciples, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer And rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. The ministry of the Spirit. And when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he was lifted up, taken up into heaven, the ascension. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Luke's record of, of these events, both in Luke and in Acts, tell us that witness has a center. The center of our witness, the heartbeat of our witness, the content of our witness is the person of Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he's come to do. Back in Acts 1 verse 8, he says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. You will witness to me. And then in Luke, the passage we just read, he fleshes that out. What is that going to look like? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name. We are to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sin in the name of Jesus Christ. He has opened the way for people to turn away from their life of self-worship. To be forgiven by God for that life of self-worship. And to turn to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in true worship. It is Jesus and only Jesus who makes that possible. We witness to him. He is the center of our witness. Our witness has no other center. We need to be crystal clear about that. Our witness has no other center. On the throne of our hearts, there's only room for one. We do not preach morality. We do not preach self-help. We do not preach health, wealth, and prosperity. We do not preach either self-esteem or social utopia. We preach Christ and Him crucified. He is our center. From that center, we look outward. Acts 1 verse 8, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Then back in Luke 24, verse 47, repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in my name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Do you see he's just reversed it? He said precisely the same thing in reverse order. From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You... Are witnesses of these things. From its center in Jesus Christ, the church looks outward. It pushes outward. It always pushes outward. Jerusalem is not enough. Judea and Samaria are not enough. The gospel must go to the ends of the earth. The Christian life is incurably dynamic, it is never static, it is never comfortable. As one wise old pastor put it, salvation is given to be shared. Salvation is given to be shared. The core business of the church, the nature of the Christian life, is to constantly be pushing outward with the message of Jesus Christ. Now for many of us, That is perhaps no longer our natural inclination. It might have been at one point when we were burning white hot in our first love. But somehow we've lost this impulse. We very subtly, slowly, by degree, by the tiniest justifications and compromises, we very subtly and slowly have made the Christian life all about me. Salvation becomes about me. My spiritual security, my forgiveness, my peace, my joy in the Lord. And what is true of the individual is, of course, grows up to be true of the church as a family. If we don't pay careful attention to the plans of the Father and the commands of the Son and the empowering presence of the Spirit, we will make the Christian life all about us. Rafa and I have a kind of uh, running battle with our life group leaders whom we love. They are our brothers and sisters in the Lord and they are our partners in the gospel. We love them. But there's a kind of a tension. We're constantly reminding them that they need to split their groups for the sake of mission, for the sake of witness. But it's hard. It is hard. Because we love each other. We're a family. Now these these people are my family. They're such a comfort to me. Now that is true and it's wonderful and we rejoice in that. But if you stay there, you end up with a DNA that says in Christ we are a redeemed family. Now I'm hoping by now you all know that's true insofar as it goes. But it's only half the truth. I'm hoping you can complete the sentence. In Christ we are a redeemed family. But we are a redeemed family of servants on mission. Charles Spurgeon has a way of saying these things. This is what he says. A Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That's a kick in the gut, isn't it? A Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now by that he doesn't mean we all need to, I don't know, go to the Ukraine. He doesn't mean that we all are gifted with the gift of evangelism. Those gifts are the Lord's to give and he doesn't give them to us all. Some of us are gifted in evangelism, some of us have the gift of administration. All given for the building up of the church and the extension of the kingdom. But not everyone has the gift of evangelism, not everyone is called to overseas mission. That said, all of us are on mission, right? So we may not have the gift of evangelism, but every single one of us is on mission. And in fact, as one scholar of Acts put it, the church is not on mission. The church is mission. There's there's some quite profound truths about who God is lying behind that statement. Let me try and condense it into just a few sentences. The word mission means sent. That's what it means. It means sent. The church is sent. The Father, now think about this. The Father sent the Son. So the church is sent. And what I, wanna, what you, what I want you to see is that that has its roots. What the church is, has its roots in who God is. Okay? The Father sent the Son. The Father and the Son Sent the Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit send the church. And so the church is mission. It's about who we are before it's about what we do. Mission is essential to who we are. We are a sent people. If the church is being true to itself and true to its master, we will always look outward. Always. Always. We will never just be comfortable with just us, whoever us might be on any given Sunday. We will always want to add to our number. We will always be looking and going out to those who do not yet know Jesus. And we'll do that as individuals, and we'll do it as a family, as a church family. Consider this, you are here because somebody understood the core business of the church And went to fetch you. What a tragedy. If we are now too comfortable to go and do the same for someone else. From the center of Jesus Christ. We look outward. We also look forward. As we witness to him. We look forward to his return. We sang about it. We'll see him in the air. And we'll be like him. There'll be no more hurt or crying or pain. We'll be with him. That's what we look forward to. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. He is coming back to judge and then to rule and to reign in person physically. Looking forward to his return does two things for us in the here and now as we witness. It does two things for our witness. It gives us comfort and it gives us urgency at the same time. It's quite a strange pair. It gives us a comfortable urgency and an urgent comfort. to comfort. Often as the church, even now, even in a society that still has some small respect for the church, we can feel weak, we can feel marginalized, ignored, occasionally even mocked, patronized, and dismissed. Just recently, I um, know of one person, one young person, who was told by their history teacher that they can't use the Bible as an historical source. It's ruled it out of bounds. It's out of court. And the reason? Because it was written, now obviously the person has in mind the New Testament here, or maybe they don't, who knows. It was written three to four hundred years after the events it claims to record, Now, not only is that just terrible history, I mean, it's awful history. It's just totally irresponsible, and uh, it just pays no attention to the facts. Uh, It is patently untrue. In fact, I'm pretty sure it comes from the Da Vinci Code. (laughs) So it's not only patently untrue, but it's also hopelessly biased and inconsistent, Because if you apply that same standard, you have to rule out most of ancient history. Because most of ancient history is written three to four centuries after the events. And your classes start to get a little thin. Your history classes. That's the history class. What about English? Well, I've looked at the set works for high school English, and you are going to struggle to find a book that does not openly malign the Christian faith in one way or another. The church is increasingly... The most popular punching bag in contemporary culture. I don't need to tell you that. One sociologist says that we're living in what you might call an ABC time. ABC, anything but Christianity. There is hardly a social problem for which the church isn't held responsible. Thanks be to God, we are not witnessing to the church, we are witnessing to Christ. He was opposed. Mocked, betrayed, abandoned, beaten, killed. And no servant is above his master. We should expect to suffer for our witness. If we are true witnesses, if we are witnessing to him, there will always be opposition. We should expect to struggle. But, and this is the wonderful truth we should also expect to draw enormous comfort. We should expect to be comforted. The Holy, Spirit is, is, the Holy Spirit is often called the comforter. We should expect to be comforted. And where do we draw our comfort? We draw it from knowing that he will return. And we will be completely vindicated. Every wrong will be made right. You can endure almost anything if you know how the story ends. You can keep running the most grueling race if you know where the race finishes and that you're guaranteed to finish. We know Jesus will return. And that gives us enormous comfort in the here and now. It also, as I said, it gives us urgency. So not only comfort, but urgency. Why? Because he's coming to judge It will not be good for his enemies in the end. Have we done everything we can to convince them to accept his offer of grace while there's still time? Before it's too late. Have we done everything we can? We're in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul describes his own witness. This is how he describes it. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus. To what? To witness, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Therefore, I witness to you, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Do you hear the urgency in his life, in his own understanding of his missionary? Do you hear the urgency? The judge is returning. Paul doesn't care about his own life. The judge is coming back. All he cares about is testifying to the gospel of the grace of God while the window of grace is still open. He wants to be innocent of their blood. He doesn't want anyone's blood on his hands. The judge is coming. Whose blood is on our hands? Looking forward meets both comfort and urgency. Urgency and great comfort. Finally, as we witness to Jesus Christ, as we look outward and we look forward to his return, outward to the lost, forward to his return, we also look upward. This is from Luke 24, uh, verse 51. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. We look upward, but not in the sense of some sort of paralyzed pietism, standing, staring at the sky, doing nothing else. No. As we get busy, as we are empowered by the Spirit and are activated in the work of witness in this world, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. In the words of the letter to the Hebrews, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We set our minds on things above. In the words of Paul to his, to, to his church in Colossae, we fix our eyes on Jesus, we set our minds on things above. We look upward. That's why non-negotiable hallmarks of true witness will always be continual worship and great joy. Think of what you are witnessing to. You are witnessing to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You are witnessing to Him risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father With all authority in heaven and on earth where he exercises that authority, all of that authority in gracious, in the gracious, loving presence of his spirit. For you, for me, for us, for the church. There is no character more noble. There is no act of love more pure. There is no greater rescue than the offer of repentance, the forgiveness of sins, and new life in his name. If your witness has lost its joy in its worship, let me put it to you that you've lost your witness. You are no longer witnessing to Jesus. You may be witnessing to religious duty. You may be witnessing to cheap grace, but you are not witnessing to him. So the goal of this sermon cannot be guilt. Now guilt, there's a place for guilt, right? There's a place for guilt, often as a first response, as a catalyst onto better things. But guilt is not where we camp, is not where we terminate, is not where we make our house, is not where we wallow. Because in the long run, guilt is a terrible motive motive for witness. If you witness out of nothing but guilt, your witness will have no life in it. It'll have no heartbeat, and it'll have no integrity. The people you are witnessing to are very quickly going to pick up on the fact that this isn't really about them. And it's not even really about the Lord Jesus. This is about you and your penance for your guilt, your religious duty. And how can we possibly be driven by guilt when the one we're witnessing to deals with all our guilt and sets us free? Witness is an expression of that freedom. It's an expression of love for your neighbor and love for the God who loved you first. It is out of the overflow of his love in our lives that we witness. And that's why witness is always an act of joy and worship. Let me put it to you positively. If you want to reclaim the worship and the joy of your witness, as I need to, go back to the center. Go back to Christ. Take your guilt. Take your fear of man. Take all of your frustration over all of your failures to witness. Take it to him. Ask him to restore to you the joy of the Lord. Ask him to help you to witness as a free act of joyful worship. Ask him to empower you with his Holy Spirit. Ask him to empower us with his Holy Spirit. So that our witness, the heartbeat of our witness is joy and worship. It's an expression of our freedom. It is out of the overflow of his love. His love to us overflows. It cannot but overflow into the lives of others as we witness to him. The core business of the church is to witness to Jesus Christ. It is to witness to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit. He is the center of that witness. From Him, we look outward to those who have not yet heard. We look forward to His return. And we look upward in joy and in worship. I hope it's now clear I hope it's become clear to you over the course of our time together that witness is neither pietism nor activism. It's neither of those things. Because witness drives us out of ourselves towards the lost, we will never be satisfied with retreating into some sort of holy huddle, circling the wagons. Our faith is for us. We'll never be satisfied there. We'll never be satisfied with pietism. And because witness centers in Jesus Christ, we won't settle for social activism either. We won't settle for just treating the symptoms. We have the cure for the disease. So we won't settle. Baptisms, weddings, funerals are not the core business of the church. They become important as opportunities to witness to Christ, who loves his people and cares about every detail of their lives becomes massively important. He is the only one who gives meaning to baptism, who gives meaning to marriage, who gives meaning even to death. Poverty relief, as critical as it is in our context, and it is, is not the core business of the church. It becomes massively important as a witness to the king who cares so much for the poor. Let me say a little bit more because I don't want you to misunderstand me on this one. By the common, just think about it, by the common grace of God, there are many organizations and many individuals who care for the poor. But not all of them are churches. Not all of them are the church. Caring for the poor does not make you a church. Witnessing to Jesus Christ is what makes you a church. Proclaiming repentance and forgiveness in His name is the unique distinctive of the church. If we don't do that, if we are not doing that, if we are not witnessing to Christ, I can promise you no one else is. A true Christ-witnessing church will care for the poor. But those who care for the poor are not necessarily a true Christ-witnessing church. I hope you understand the distinction. The core business of the church is to go to the world with the message of repentance and forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ and with lives that match the message. Let me just close uh, by getting a little bit personal. When I was, when I was a young man, many moons ago, uh, I was idealistic like most young people and I wanted to change the world. I wanted to make a difference. I mean, that's pretty natural to young people. So I, tried, I you know, got busy trying to figure out what making a difference means. So I studied philosophy, politics, economics. I'm trying to figure out what's the problem, how do we fix it? And then one day I went into a church that was doing its job and witnessing to Jesus Christ. And it was there for the first time. I mean, it's such a simple reality, but it's totally lost in us when we are dead in our sins and transgressions. For the, there for the first time I discovered That yes, the world out there needs fixing. But so do I. That I was part of the problem. That the problem that I see in the world starts in me. And I couldn't fix myself. Only Jesus could. And as by his grace, by the ministry of the Spirit, the gracious ministry of the Spirit, I I began to sort of move forward in that truth one small step. At a time, several steps backward, another step forward. As I grew as one of his followers, I realized that to fix the world means fixing human beings. From the inside out, one person at a time, into a new humanity. And only Jesus can do that. I've had to learn this lesson and relearn it and relearn it over and over again. And every time I despair, every time I lose hope in this hopeless world, I am reminded that there is hope. But there's only one hope. There's only one way to fix the world. And that is to witness to Jesus in word and in deed. The only way the world will change is if people change from the inside out is if human nature is changed from the inside out and only Jesus can do that the world desperately needs him people desperately need him we have him we are his witnesses let's pray Father, we thank you for your perfect purposes in exalting your Son to your right hand where he rules and he reigns. Thank you for sending your Spirit to empower us to witness to our King. We pray that in the power of the Spirit, we will submit to his rule in every aspect of our lives so that we can go out as credible witnesses. Spirit of God, empower us. Empower us to take the gospel of grace to the world. Give us a deep heart for the lost. Help us to witness with the comfort and the urgency that comes from knowing that Jesus will return. Fill us with joy. Fill us with thanksgiving. Fill us with praise. The praise that comes from knowing God and knowing what he is doing in and through the church. Father, we pray our prayer this morning. Empower us by your spirit. Empower us to be the church. Empower us to be your
0: witnesses. Amen.